Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. There is a little voice inside us all. Sometimes it is drowned out by the cacophony of life. And some of us choose to push the mute button. But if you're willing to listen to this mysterious force and trust it, you just might find that thing that lights you up inside and makes you whole. For Michael O'Neill, the voice came out of the blue at just the right time, and it was impossible to ignore, perhaps because it sounded exactly like the grandfather from the Waltons. You may not know O'Neill's name, but he is an accomplished Hollywood character actor who has spent the last four decades chasing excellence and fulfillment. You probably know his face from Seabiscuit, Dallas Buyers Club, NCIS, Grey's Anatomy, or The West Wing. It all hinged on his decision as a young man fresh out of Auburn University to listen to that little voice and to follow it home. You grew up in Montgomery, Michael. Um, in the 50s, what was that like? Well, it was, uh, you know, it's funny, it's all you know as a child, uh, but it certainly had a, <clears throat> a profound influence on me, like a lot of uh, children uh, in that period of time. I was raised, both my parents worked, and I was raised by a black woman who, I don't know, you know, there's, it's probably the closest to unconditional love I've ever known. So when the civil rights movement happened, um, it, and I had traveled everywhere with her, you know, on the back of the bus, we'd go to the park and wherever we went. And, and I just remember the vitality of it and the quality of laughter and the stories that were exchanged. So 
uh, I remember the bus boycotts. I remember, you know, Dr. King. Uh, uh, so my my childhood, I think probably the most impactful thing that happened, um, and it still resonates for me, was the civil rights movement. And, you know, Montgomery and Birmingham were the two sort of uh, North Stars for that. Is that a good memory for you, thinking about those days? No. No, I'm sorry, it's not. Um, the the affection that I felt and the and the and the uh, experiences that I had, you know, were good. But, um, you know, I was taught the custom of the South, just like everybody else was, and um, the conflict of that for me, knowing that something was wrong, uh, and not either not knowing what to do about it or not being brave enough to do anything about it. Keith um, left a a long tail on the kite, if you know what I mean. Um, it is, it is it both helped me fly and kept me on the ground. How old were you when you began to, to kind of appreciate the, the, the fact that that was wrong? Six. And I say that again, because, you know, when you're the innocence of the childhood mind. I could never understand, never understand why um, they were called black because I would often study uh, Jenny's hands, and um, they were the they were lighter than mine. Do you know? So as a child, um, it just had a profound impact on me when when we were told. And there's a very famous line in that period of time when all of a sudden you can't play with black children anymore. It's it's called they have their own and you go what what does that mean it means they have their own son so um, they play with theirs and you play with yours and so that you know it just uh, it was painful so when i look back on that period of time um it, it was it was it was very conflicting it was confusing um you know i i my grandmother lived in new orleans and we would drive down to see her at spring break in the spring break of about, oh gosh, I want to say 61 or 62 was the Selma to Montgomery March. And we drove right back through it at night. And I can remember my nose pressed to the glass of the car looking at campfires. And I said, what's that daddy? And he said, that's trouble, son. You stay away from that. So, um, you know, we just have a, uh, we have a very difficult history in our part of the world and uh, and yet there's this tremendous you know affection that exists and tell me about jenny and what what she meant to you <laughs> you know as a just as a child having having a caretaker literally a caretaker um and and it, it too was in many ways the customs my mother and father loved me dearly but they had to work. We were a middle-class family after World War II. You know, my, my dad had come back uh, from the Pacific Theater as a Navy corpsman, a medic, and he continued in the uh, medical field for a pharmaceutical company. And my mom worked at the telephone company. So they were gone from seven to five or 5.30 or six. So my day, you know, was filled with Jenny and adventures and, and, and cooking and, and, you know, gardening and just, um, whatever Jenny did, I was like, as you know, I was glued to her, bless her heart. She couldn't get away from me. 
so I guess what she means to me is that, um, you know, I, I had another parent, really, I did. And uh, that parent couldn't have been more loving to me or encouraging or, you know, just take me wherever we were going. And what's the most important lesson you learned from your father? Wow. You know, it's funny because my dad taught me a lot of things. He, he taught me to swim before I could walk. And I still swim in the Pacific, you know, weekly. Um, but, but, you know, when you, that's not what you're asking me. Um, Gosh, I, you know, I remembered about 13 or 14, he turned to me one day and said, be careful of whiskey, son. It's never been kind to our family. And um, he was right. Um, but I, you know, I, I think the lesson that my, my, the real lesson of my dad was, uh, we don't cheat. Um, and, oh gosh, you know, I want to say, make sure your handshake is firm that you look them in the eye um, and, you know, do your best, be honest and do your best. And what did you first dream about as a little boy about becoming? Gracious. You know, probably to play quarterback for the New York Giants, which was not a great idea for a kid who was slow and in corrective shoes and didn't have a particularly good arm. Um, but you know, you, those NFL games, those great NFL games, you know, they were such a part of our, uh, the, the, the mythology of our childhood that, that, uh, you know, that, that was a great goal. Um, you know, that I went to Auburn, I know you're a university of Alabama graduate and, and, uh, um, you know, I wanted to play ball for them. Um, but I, I, no ambition about acting. I can promise you that. I, I, you know, I, I was a leaf in the first grade, and they didn't let me act after that for a long time. I don't know how you mess up a leaf, but I did it. You know, as I look back on it now, what I do realize is that I was an imitator as a child. I imitated all kinds of things that I saw, and um, that. I, I, there are a lot of actors that that's the way they started. Now I didn't know this until years later. You know, when I started reading, you know, uh, biographies of well-known actors and found out that a lot would simply had a great ear and an eye for imitation. And that's what I did as a child, usually in a very goofy way, you know. Who did you do? Uh, well, do you remember the Jackie Gleason show? Of course. And away okay. we go. And there was, a, there was a character on there, Freddie Guggenheim, something like that. Yeah. I'm going to try this for you. I would never do this for anyone else. Hi, Joe. What are you doing? That was crazy Guggenheim or something like that. Can you do uh, how sweet it is? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can't either, clearly. <laughs> so what did you want to be at that point? I mean, did you have any real ambition? I mean, clearly you want to be the quarterback for the Giants, but I mean, who didn't? Truthfully, I wanted to be a doctor. I really wanted to be a doctor as a child. For a long, long time, I wanted to be a doctor. And I think it, it clearly had to do with my dad. And, and, you know, you asked me earlier, what's the most important thing that he taught me? And I don't know if this is a, uh, I really don't know if this is a taught thing. It certainly was a thing that he, um, the power of example existed in. Um, 
But what he taught me was that when things get critical, get very clear. And so when things are at their worst, I, for some reason, drop in. And my dad, because of his medic experience during World War II, I can remember things that my father did in terms of stepping into triage, a really difficult situation. And I kind of learned, step toward that. Don't run away from it. If you can help, help. If you don't know what you're doing, get help from someone who can. Um, but there was a little girl hit in our neighborhood by a car. And the car was on top of her. And I heard a commotion and I, I ran outside and I looked and my father's car was in a curve down the street. It was still running and the door was open. And I took off because I thought something had happened to him. And when I got to the spot, this car that was on top of this little girl was actually in a driveway. My father was under the car. I saw his leg sticking out and he was working on her, you know, before, before they could get the automobile off of her. And, um, so what I've, I think that was probably the greatest lesson. So what I wanted to be more than anything else, Keith, was, uh, was an MD. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room, where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the premium membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovan.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed, The Life of a Test Pilot and the Birth of an American Icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. But you wind up at Auburn chasing an economics degree. Now, that's got to be some sort of story. No, um, I soured on medicine um, late in my, in my teens. I had a godfather who was a doctor, and he, he died in his office alone. Uh, his hair was down to his shoulders. Um, he had emphysema really badly and, and probably a drug addiction. And I saw it, and I thought, oh, my God, is, you know, in a, in a childhood or adolescent mind, it was just, this is where medicine leads. I don't want any part of that. So I really... I, I went to Auburn without a tremendous amount of purpose other than that I was the first in my family to be college educated. And it was a huge deal to my parents. I mean, they saved and worked and, you know, encouraged and um, they really wanted me to have that experience because neither of them did. And I don't even know if I look back on the line of my DNA, I may have been the first ever. Um, so I went there. Uh, because it was it was really important to my family and I wanted to go as well. I just didn't go there with a purpose about a career as much. I started in pre-dentistry and had no ambition to be a dentist, none. And, um, you know, if you, 
this was before your time, Keith, but the Vietnam War was raging. My my class, 1969, literally got the last student deferment in college. So as long as you were in college, you weren't drafted. And uh, so, I, I mean, it just, I ended up in economics because I had an, an eye and an ear for it. I, I understood it. And um, it seemed to me to be a good platform to go to graduate school. I knew that I needed to continue my education if I were going to do something skilled. And uh, economics was a pretty good, you know, base for that. And, and how fearful was your generation of, of Vietnam, of having to, you know, get on that plane and go halfway around the world? Well, again, you know, we were of the generation in the South that, that we served, you know, so I knew that if they called me, I was going, I, I, I didn't have a question about that. You know, we didn't have the protest against the war. We didn't have the influences um, of the, of the reality of Vietnam. What we knew is that it, you know, our parents had served and our grandparents had probably served and we would serve as well. So, you know, I, I think you didn't get to the fear until they got close to taking you. And, you know, it was the first war that was televised. So we were actually seeing what was going on. And that was very, very, very sobering about what the war looked like. And then, you know, the, uh, I was old enough to, to sort of see how soldiers were treated when they came home, you know, getting out of their uniforms as quickly as they could because they were, you know, pilloried by whoever was around them as baby killers or, or, you know, it's interesting because I think it was the, it was inconceivable for this generation, or even maybe in our history, it was inconceivable that the government would, would lie to us. So it had to be blamed on somebody else. Couldn't be the government. And so the soldiers that came home caught the blame. So yeah, it was, it was fearful for a lot of reasons, you know, and I had guys that came back and I saw their wounds and I thought, you know what, this is, this is serious. There's nothing, you know, you don't get shot and fall over. Um, like we'd seen in the movies. So when did acting first present itself? You know, um, a man came to Auburn and did, and I had seen Hal Holbrook on television, on PBS, do, do uh, Mark Twain. And it had a profound impact on me, Keith, because it was dealing with the very social issues in, you know, in the late 1800s and early 1900s that we were dealing with the questions that we were asking about race. And Mark Twain had a point of view and a lot of answers about it. So when this guy came, it, it's, it, 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 it got my attention in a way that, that very little has. And I went into, I think, a kind of hyper-focus during his performance. And a lot of it literally printed on me. And um, I would play around with it, you know, and again, a, 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 an imitation sort of thing. And, and Hal's work, Hal and I became friends over the years, um, over the last, you know, 50 years until he passed away last January. Um, and I've, I admired tremendously and we'd have wonderful conversations about Mark Twain and a lot of things in life, but, um, that, that had, Mr. Holbrook had a profound effect. And then this man came and I was in the air with it. It wasn't Hal, it was somebody else. And, um, it really, I thought, 
I said, I can remember saying to myself, Keith, there are two things I'd like to do in this life. I'd like to do Mark Twain on stage and I'd like to play a good cocktail party piano. And those were the only ambitions that I had. That was <laughs> quite it. a combo. Uh, <laughs> I guess. But, uh, you know, I. I um, what did your dad think about your ambition, your bubbling ambition at that point? They didn't know anything about it until I told them I was going to California. They didn't know a thing about it. They didn't see it coming. I remember sitting down the day I graduated from Auburn and saying, I just want to tell you, I'll backstory this because this is sort of when you asked me about the, the, the nascent beginnings, it was seeing that Twain, there was something that happened to me. Um, I won an award in, in uh, my national fraternity. And part of the obligation of the award was to address the fraternity experience. And I tried to do that candidly. I was in Muncie, Indiana at an international convention, and I tried to talk about the positive things and that I thought the fraternity embodied, but also, you know, some of the negative things. And I wrote a pretty good speech, and uh, they recorded it. I didn't know this. Uh, they recorded it, and they sent it out, you know, to college presidents and stuff like that, uh, or, you know, just quote-unquote distinguished alumni. But the editor of the magazine of that fraternity was going to Los Angeles to do interviews with some of the Lambda Chi's, uh, Lambda Chi Alpha was the fraternity that, that had distinguished themselves in the entertainment industry. One was Dean Jagger, one was Chester Gould. Um, Chester Gould created Dick Tracy, and the last was Will Gear, who was playing the grandfather on the Waltons at the time. I don't know how it came about, Keith, but somehow or another, they played that speech for Will. And Mr. Gear says, you had to get in touch with this fellow. And they said, yeah, he's at Auburn. Mr. Gear says, call him. So they do. And I come to the phone and he said, son, this is Will Gear. I didn't even know how to pronounce his name correctly. I called him Mr. Greer for about the first. And he said, son. <laughs> Could have just called him Zeb. Yeah, really. I said, he said, son, I think you should try acting before the corporate structure snaps you up. And I said, Mr. Gear, I don't know anything about it. He said, well, come to California. I'll work with you. So, um, I said, can I call you back? Probably the soberest thing I did in that conversation. And, and he said, yes, he gave me his phone number. And I waited a bit and I thought, oh, this is, you know, I, A, two things were transpiring at once. I was leaving college, but, but uh, even more significant than that was that they were winding down the Vietnam War. They didn't want me. They had me and didn't want me. And uh, so all of a sudden a gap was open in my life and I'd applied to graduate schools, but I, but the gap was there. And I thought, you know what, let's go find out who we are in the world. And, uh, but I was hesitant about the acting thing. And I went to talk to a man, he owned the lumber yard in Auburn. His name was Ed Lee Spencer. And I went to talk to Ed Lee because he was the most no nonsense man I knew. And I figured he'd say, son, go, you know, get a job, start your family and uh, try to be a good citizen. And and so I told Ed Lee the story and the invitation to go to California. And he leaned back in his chair and he said, well, you know, you have to go, don't you? And I said, excuse me? And he said, well, you know, you have to go. He said, you don't want to look back on your life and wonder how it might have been. And um, Keith, you could have knocked me over with a feather. It was the last thing I expected. And so I loaded up my car and drove to California. And uh, I didn't even know where Hollywood was, if I'm honest about it. And uh, I got there and I, 
it really, it wasn't acting. It still wasn't acting. What it was, was could I survive in a place I didn't know? Did I have the metal, you know, to make something of myself? I think more importantly, um, I wanted to find out who, who I was, who and what I was. If I had some gumption and, um, so I guess, you know, the acting evolved from there. And I'm sorry, that's really not the question you asked me, but it doesn't matter. It's a great answer. So um, what do you think Will Gear saw in you in that short clip? I mean, that's extraordinary. Well, I think I would like to think this, and I'm going to speculate about this. Um, and I, there's a caveat that goes with this. I think he saw that I was honest and I think he saw that I tried to speak to the heart of the matter and um, sometimes emotionally. So, and that that's a lot of acting uh, to be honest, to speak to the heart of the matter. And if there, you know, if it's emotional, so be it. And so there was an inclination that, that, uh, that I had some of the prerequisites, I guess. Now I will say this, Keith, when I, when I, when Will invited me, I assumed that he had specifically picked me out of the lineup, right? I was number four, but I was the one in the lineup. And as I worked with pop over the years, uh, I heard him say that to, uh, I bet 35 people easily, maybe more. Hey, you should come to California and try acting. <laughs> I was like, Oh my God. You know, somebody get the fish hook out of my mouth. I took that thing hook, line, and sinker. But but you know your your friend at the lumberyard. You know he was right. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you know if, if you had an idea, you had to follow it. Yeah. And that was probably the most. That was the boldest move I could have made the most challenging move I could have made. Um, you know, I was raised to go to college, come home, get a job, get, get a wife, two kids and two cars, and live right down the street from my family. So when I told him I was going, it did shake him up a little bit. My mother cried and my father said, well, I always knew you'd do something. I just didn't know what. And, um, but yeah, Ed Lee was right. You know, uh, about three years ago, uh, I was, I got a cast in a series called Council of Dads for NBC. And it's a role that I'd waited on for about 25 years. And I was going to drive from Birmingham because I was there at that time to Savannah where we were going to begin filming. And I stopped by the bank that Ed Lee had been involved in and asked if, uh, if I could speak with him. They said, well, we'll give us your number and so forth. And I don't blame them. Um, and I finally got the long and the short his daughter made an arrangement for me to come and see him. Now, Ed Lee's got to be in his nineties and sharp as a tack. And I got to thank him for saying something that literally changed the direction, you know, the direction of my life. But it, that was a sweet moment for me to be able to look him in the eye and say, Ed Lee, you were right. And moreover, there's no way I'll be able to express how grateful uh, I am for that advice. And he said, well, I'm glad you took it. I don't remember giving it. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. So you started working with uh, Mr. Gear. 
Mm-hmm. What's the first thing he taught you about the craft? Um, throw yourself in. Throw yourself in. I didn't know how to act, Keith. I had no idea. I'd never, I, like, I, I, was, I was kidding with you, but it's true. I had been on stage once in the first grade as a leaf in a Thanksgiving uh, pageant. You know, I can remember the uniform or the two pieces of cutout paper that were painted green. Um, so he, he believed, uh, and rightly so, he taught me that it was an apprenticeship and that you learn it by doing it. And if you can do it with people who are better than you are, you'll learn it faster. So that's basically what he did. He set up a theater in Los Angeles at the height of his fame with the Waltons. And uh, I have to understand, Will worked Doc Bart's Riverboat show. He did Chautauqua tours. He did silent films. You know, he, uh, he did some of the first talk, you know, when talkies came in, he did radio. He was basically a lexicon of about 80 years of, you know, American theater. And, um, one of the things that, that he taught me, he had learned from Minnie Mattern Fisk, who was the first lady of the theater at the turn of the century. She, he, they hired him as a juvenile in Chicago. And um, one day during a matinee, she blocked his exit from the stage. And she said, Mr. Gear, successfully speak your way out of this situation under her breath. And he stammered and stuttered and didn't know what to do. She said, you're not doing very well, Mr. Gear. And um, finally, he said something and she said, you may pass. Years later, we were working at Austin. They were opening up the LG, LBJ library and they invited Will and, and I to come and do this Americana piece, which was Mark Twain and Robert Frost, Walt Whitman, Woody Guthrie. And I had learned those cues within an inch of my life. If you said this, I said that. You said this, I said that. So he saw me doing that on stage. In the middle of a Twain piece, he threw me a Frost cue and watched me spiral because the gears locked up and uh, I stammered and stuttered. And he said, you're not doing very well. And I finally came out with something and shifted to a Twain poem. I mean, to a frost poem. And then came, and when we stepped off the stage, he said, Michael, I did that because all of you has to be there. You have to, all of you has to be there. It's not just about what you've learned or what your cue is. All of you has to be there. And it was a great lesson. Uh, for a young actor, throw yourself in, but better bring all of you with you. And were you doing something else to support yourself at that point? <laughs> yes, I was. Um, there's a litany of these jobs. Let me think. I think during that period of time, I was working construction. Um, there had been a bad earthquake in 74 in, in, uh, in California, and it damaged some schools in, in Hollywood. And I took a job with a construction firm. I was basically a shovel worker. I moved sand from one place to another or dug out, you know, foundations or pillars or things that had been cracked. Or So I was doing <clears throat> a lot of rough construction. Then I took a job waiting tables and I got fired from that job. And then I took another job with construction. And why'd you get fired? Um, they wanted to promote me to manager. And I, I declined. And the, the only significance that that has is that I, I, I was just looking back on some journals recently. 
I was very, very, very protective. I think I backed into acting, Keith. In fact, I know I did. I, that was a lucky fluke. But after a bit, I got intentional about it. And to be intentional, I was afraid that if I made money at anything else, anything else, I wouldn't act. I wouldn't, I would be, I would be pulled by the tide away from it. And uh, you had to have a desperation about your life at that point. Yeah. And also, I, you know, I, I was roughing my life up. I wanted to work hard. I wanted to, I wanted to shovel in my hand. You know, I wanted to have to sling a, uh, swing a sledgehammer. Um, now, Harrison I, Ford always talks about the, you know, the fact that he was a carpenter for all those years. Could you still, and the, and the, and he never wanted to lose that skill. Could you still sling a sledgehammer if you had to? You bet I can. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a slower swing, but I can. I do a lot of stuff. You know, my father turned to me one day and said, man, I'm amazed that you can do all this stuff. I said, well, you have to learn a lot. You have to be able to do a lot of different things if you want to be an actor. And uh, I, I think it's one of the most wonderful aspects of the craft is that you have to learn new things, you know, with each address of a character. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it, that part of it, the, con the continuance of learning is I think the gift that it gives us. Um, but it's funny, those early days, Keith, were, um, I, because I didn't know how to act and I didn't read well, I stammered a lot when I read. So for me to do an audition was not just painful for me, it was excruciating for the other people in the room. And they would, you know, they would do that thing and I know it so well, um, thank you very much. And there, there, there are a lot of ways to say thank you very much, but there are a couple that mean, please leave the room. <laughs> and I, I know the pitch of those well from those days, but moreover, people kept saying, well, you won't make it. You, you, oh, no, this is not going to work. You, you can't make it. And the more they said it, the more, I don't know if the word is resentful, but it probably is. The more I, I can remember thinking, you don't know me well enough to tell me if I can make it or not. You don't have that. You, you don't have that power. So I really dug in. And I started to study hard. Will's daughter was an incredible teacher, Ellen Gear. She'd been the original ingenue for uh, um, the, the Guthrie Theater uh, when that was first, first formed in uh, Minneapolis. And for Tyrone Guthrie, of all people, you know, the, the beginning of the thing. And, and um, Ellen was just an incredible teacher and, and a wonderfully wise person. And I, I adored her. I learned so much of, from her. Cause she, you know, cause Will would say to, you know, anybody try, I'm California, try acting. But then Ella, Ellen got left with the refuse of that. And this particular refuse was me. So she helped me. And um, yeah, it was a, there were a lot of jobs, a lot of construction jobs, you know, and I moved to New York. Um, and uh, then it was bicycle messaging jobs. That was, that was an adventure. That was a wild, wild west on the streets of New York and the early 80s and late 70s. Um, some waiting, some bartending. Again, I was most always fired from those jobs. Um, I taught school for a little while. That was a meaningful, that was actually a meaning, meaningful thing to do. I unloaded boxcars at the old pen line. Um, I worked for the railroad for a bit. So you do what you have to do. And what do you consider your, your first, your big break? Um, 
probably my big break was meeting Mary Peterson at Universal. And, you know, in the, the old days, you could go around. They didn't have the gates up at the studios. Um, and this predates a, a better break. Um, but, you know, you could go in. And, of course, because I wasn't an actor and hadn't really done anything, I made up a resume. And then as I would get a job, I would strike off the line at the bottom and add the real job to the top. And my goal was, was to get it all legitimate. Um, but in those days, you could walk around. You could walk into the studio and you could walk, you know, down the halls and you might see a casting director's secretary. And then, you'd, you know, you slip in your picture and resume and say, you know, if, any, if anything comes up, just... And uh, most of those, you know, ended up in the circular file. But um, Mary Peterson, I met at Universal... And she was the first person, the first casting person to have faith in me and tried to cast me in something, um, um, a, a, a miniseries called Centennial. And they ultimately went, ended up going with somebody else, a producer hired a friend. Um, but I remember Mary, and she actually helped me get my SAG, Screen Actors Guild card, which was difficult in those days because... The only way to get a SAG card was to have a SAG job, but the only way to get a SAG job was to have a SAG card. So you can see the riddle in that one. Um, but Mary helped me and I got hired on a show called Quincy M.E. No, I take that back. It wasn't that. It was uh, that was the second one. The first one was the Shirley Jones show. It's a short lived show with John McIntyre and Roseanne Arquette and Shirley Jones. Right out of the gate, I'm working with an Academy Award one. And uh, I got my Screen Actors Guild card on that gig. And I think my episode ran and they canceled the show. And I should have known something then. But uh, we, I went on to work for um, Mary on Quincy M.E. with Jack Klugman. But the big break for me, Keith, honestly came with a film called Ghost Story. And that was shot in about 1979, 1980. Uh, it starred Fred Astaire and Melvin Douglas. Patricia Neal and John Houseman and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Um, Jackie Brooks was on that film. Did you? You're talking about some heavy hitter actors. Yeah. Did you feel intimidated? Uh, oh yes, yeah. It was my first film. It was my very first film. <clears throat> and there's a little story attached with that if you want it, but if not, let me just say this: there were at, at any given moment 280 years of acting experience on the stage and so when they were filming michael o'neill would be somewhere watching somewhere i had nothing to do with the scenes but i wanted to make sure that i had an eye on it because i was watching people who were masters at their craft and um i remember once there was a round table scene with all the older guys and it's you know the ghost stories the genre is horror but it's not, not it's a suspense film and they're all, they've done something as young men and they come together to discuss it as old men. And uh, when they're doing it, I'm sitting behind the camera off, you know, obviously off screen in the side of the room, but I'm watching there, this wonderful long, you know, cherry wood table. And I keep seeing a motion underneath Keith, a motion of the table. And I kind of bent down, I curved down and I looked and it, Mr. it's Mr. Astaire's foot. And I watch it for a little bit and I realized as I saw the dialogue of the scene play out that Mr. Astaire had tapped out the rhythm of the scene for himself. And once he had that rhythm, he had the scene. And I thought, Oh my God, 
I just, I just watched Fred Astaire because he started as a drummer and then he moved, you know, went to dancing. It was his language. His first language was rhythm. So I learned take with you whatever you can take. Um, remember your first phone number if you can and use it in the scene if you can. Did you understand at the time that you're in a business that is, that's cumulative, that it's, it's learning this and this and this. And if you survive long enough, you're going to be an accumulation of all of these pieces of craft. I wish I'd had that uh, faith. Um, you know, the early days, you didn't know whether you were in or out. You know, I, I have the vantage point now of looking back over a you know, almost a 40 year history, but none of that existed then. So you're sort of operating on faith that you will a get in to the industry and B stay in the industry. Those are two different things. And they're, and they're, they're very serious uh, crossroads. Um, but no, I didn't. And answer your question. I, I didn't know that. I didn't, I, I simply was shark like looking for the next job in front of me and hoping that I would get it. Because again, understand, I was a neophyte actor, a neophyte actor. I, I was learning, I believe, Will, you learn it by doing it with others. And if they're better than you, you'll learn it better, faster. And they were all better than I. They were all better than I was. They knew what they were doing. I didn't read well. I stammered, you know. And I remember I was given a piece of advice by him. He said, uh, I want you to go home every evening and read Time Magazine out loud or Look Magazine or whatever it is, read it out loud. And so I would work construction during the day and I would go sit and soak in a hot bathtub at night and read it out loud until it started sounding like human speech, which it hadn't heretofore sounded like human speech. It sounded like a guy that didn't know how to read. I did know how to read, by the way. I just didn't read aloud very well. How did you conquer that? That exercise, staying with it for months, reading it aloud, read it aloud, read it aloud. And in some respects, I think I'm a better reader than I am an actor because now that mechanism is so well-worn that you can hand it to me and I can read it and I can deliver it um, because it was so important to even take something that's what we call carrying the mail exposition and, uh, and make it sound human make it sound as if it has a life in it that is the first life that it's ever breathed. And um, that, you know, that helped me a lot. And then just continuing to over the years to work on it, keep, keep working on the, the ability to the mechanism of picking it up and making sure that it, it was connected to something and had human breath under it. It sounds like from, as you mentioned earlier, that when you got rejected a lot in your early days that there was a defiance that almost drove you, right? Um, how did you avoid all that rejection from wounding you? I didn't for a long time. I didn't for a long time. I don't know that any of us when we're young can because it's rejection. Uh, and it stings. And particularly when you're an actor, it's you, it's not your music. It's not your, your, your uh, you know, your accounting sheet or your, or your presentation. It's you. 
And it took me a very long time to learn that it's really not personal. But in the early days, it did smart, but it did create the sense of I'll show you. I am not done. I refused. I refused to um, this knocked me down, particularly if I wanted the role, it knocked me down. I am not staying down. I will be back. I will find you and I will get you. Uh, and I don't I really don't know where that came from, uh, other than I always hated being underestimated as a kid. I didn't like it. I didn't I didn't like the feeling of it. I didn't. And I don't know. Is that hubris? I don't know what that is. Um, you know, I was an average kid. But to underestimate me really did something in the launch sequence uh, for me that that got me going. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever. <laughs>